Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Jennifer Raff has written a new book for general audiences that combines archaeology with emerging genetic evidence to tell the story of the peoples who were the first to populate the Americas, when they got here, and how. And how scientists can cooperate with their modern-day descendants. Origin, a genetic history of the Americas, which is published by Hachette's 12 Books imprint, has already made an appearance on the New York Times bestseller list and brings Jennifer Raff, a geneticist and associate professor of anthropology at the University of Kansas, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your show. Oh, thank you for saying that. I'm very pleased to have you here because this is a, a history that has fascinated me over the years. Despite many years of research, doesn't the scientific understanding of the peopling of the Americas continue to remain some something of a, a matter of conjecture? You say the state of knowledge of how the Americas were populated is really in flux, and recent discoveries hold the potential to change the story? Yes. Um, as with other fields, I think, you know, of course, when we get new evidence, we have to update our models. And it just seems to me that in recent years— in large part because of genetics, um, we've been getting a lot of new evidence lately. And so it does feel as though there are new findings coming out almost weekly that <laughs> make it um, important for us to keep a flexible and open mind about, about how this history unfolded. Well, I heard over many years that uh, it all began with the migration from northeastern Siberia at the end of the Ice Age over a land bridge in the Bering Straits around 12,000 to 14,000 years ago when, when sea levels were significantly lowered due to what was called the Quaterni glaciation. Is, is that still believed? Well, not quite. Um, that's also the story that I learned in school. And it, it turns out that the majority of archaeologists and geneticists, I wouldn't say all, there's still some who argue for this late migration model, but the majority of us think that it occurred much earlier than that, likely fifteen to 17,000 years ago, maybe even 25,000 years ago, and that it was a much more complicated process than just people racing across a land bridge and um, down into the continents. I've read that some researchers contend that settlers may have reached what's now Southern California by 130,000 years ago. Is that possible? <laughs> well, I don't really agree with the evidence. I'm not really convinced by that that particular um, archaeological site that it's uh, legitimate um, evidence of humans there that early. But, uh, you know, to be to be fair, there are some archaeologists who do believe that, just not very many. Um I would say the majority of archaeologists argue for a, a much later, <laughs> a much later migration. Twenty to thirty thousand years ago. That's still a long time ago. That is. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really depends. That, so I, I imagine people are confused. Like, why can't archaeologists <laughs> come to an agreement here? And it, it all hinges on what constitutes a legitimate archaeological site. And when you have these really early sites, they're. They can be quite controversial. It's not like we're looking at burials of humans or even, um, you know, hearths and evidence of, you know, human habitation in a particular site. It's 
um, more like here is a flake of a rock. Was it flaked by humans or did it get flaked naturally? You know, things like that. Or, or here's a broken mammoth tusk. Was it broken naturally or was it broken by humans who um, excavated it or I'm sorry, who, who butchered it? And so these kinds of questions are, are very debated. And that's what leads to this, this sort of open question as to exactly how early did people get here. Why aren't there more human remains bones or whatever. Uh, People died. They got buried, I assume. Yeah, um, they may have been buried. They may not have been buried. Um, You know, there's societies across the globe have have treated their dead in different ways. Um, In some cases, the dead were burned. In some cases, perhaps they were buried at sea or or in other ways. But I, I think that the reason we don't see very many burials that predate let's say 10,000 years ago, um, is really because there weren't that many people here. So I think that populations were pretty sparse uh, early on. And um, it's just very, very difficult when you think about looking for um, a needle in a haystack. Now amplify that to continent-wide <laughs> scales. And, and you're really talking about um, a presence that's very difficult to detect. That's my, route, that's my feeling anyway. We'll have to see. <laughs> well, one route that's been proposed is uh, that either on foot or using primitive boats, uh, people move, migrated down the Pacific coast to South America as far as Chile. But isn't that hard to prove? Because any archaeological evidence of coastal occupation during the last ice age would now have been covered by uh, the sea level rise? Yes, it's very difficult. We don't have a lot of direct evidence of people taking that route. But we do have some indirect evidence that I think is pretty convincing. Um, The main thing for me is what what does the genetic record tell us? So our DNA is an archive of our ancestors' histories, and we can see population scale events um, using the tools of uh, population genetics. We can reconstruct various scenarios. and, And one of the things that very talented geneticists have done in reconstructing the histories of indigenous ancestors is um, modeling how quickly lineages separated from each other, which gives us an idea of how fast people were migrating. And what the DNA evidence currently shows us is that people were migrating very, very, very fast (laughs) from North to South America so quickly that it seems implausible that this would have been a slow or overland migration. It it, it is much more consistent with very rapid migration by boat. And we know that people had watercraft by then in other parts of the world. So what we're really lacking, of course, is, you know, the direct archaeological ground truthing of people in particular locations um, and their boats and so that makes it a testable hypothesis that just has not been um, proven or disproven at this point. But there is some indirect evidence that's quite strong. Well, the original people wound up moving all across North and South America, North, South, East, West. Are there certain genetic similarities wherever we go? Yes, we can see some really interesting patterns in um, human genetic variation across the Americas. But the majority of that is really um, mitochondrial DNA. And and I'll, I'll take a minute to explain what I mean by that. Please, um, so fine. The hum- <laughs> when you have um, 
you know, when you think about human DNA, right, you think about your chromosomes. Well, um, we have another genome separate from that in the mitochondria of our cells, which are the little organelles that generate our power, our energy. And there are many, many more copies of mitochondrial genomes than there are of nuclear genomes. Why would that be? um, Because we have lots of mitochondria in each cell to help us generate energy. Uh Uh, We only have one Um, copy of each chromosome from each parent, right? So you have two copies of chromosome one, two copies of chromosome two, and so forth. Mitochondria, you have hundreds or thousands of mitochondria per cell. And so it is a lot easier for us to get mitochondrial DNA from ancient sources because it's much more abundant. And so for a long time, the majority of genetics research on ancient humans was done on mitochondrial DNA. And so we have a pretty good idea of mitochondrial lineages and how they were patterned across the Americas. And they do show, they do match a North to South migration with some evidence for uh, long-term population continuity in some parts of the the, uh, continents and population replacements and people moving around in other parts. Um, we're just now getting a record from the nuclear genomes as well. And that's thanks to advances in our ability to recover these really scarce genetic fragments and also to analyze them in a more powerful way. And so we're really only just now starting to get a picture of those fine scale migrations from the nuclear genome. And it's much more detailed, much more powerful Um, your mitochondrial genome is inherited exclusively matrilineally. So yours is the same as your mother's and her mother's and her mother's and her mother's. And so it gives you a limited glimpse of population history. When you look at the nuclear genome, you're looking at all of your ancestors. And so that gives a far more detailed um, picture. And what we're seeing from that is that this population history was complex, that the migrations were really complicated. And uh, we don't have a clear answer for that yet. That's a long way of me telling you I don't have a simple answer. Well, but there continue to be waves of migration for for thousands of years. Uh, I uh, this isn't in your book, but uh, I've been to the Four Corners area many times, and uh, the and, and going to Anasazi ruins. And I was told that the reason that the Anasazi started building cliff dwellings. Uh, with ladders was because uh, new waves of people were coming in and raiding their villages. So they had to do something to protect themselves. And those those new waves might have been what, Apaches or Navajo? There were definitely um, lots of sort of micro population scale histories in various parts of the of the continents that we can get at genetically. In fact, that's a project that I'm working on right now. It's not in my book (laughs) because I'm far from done with it. But um, I want to stress that we do not have genomic scale data from the majority of uh, regions in the present day United States that we just do not have the genetic coverage to address these questions yet. Um, I think that is changing slowly, but it will really depend on how we conduct our research going forward in the future, whether we can build trust with tribes um, to to do this work. Because as it stands right now, um, there are not uh, too many um, tribes that are actively participating in this kind of research for uh, for various good reasons. <laughs> um, Which we will get into. 
In fact, uh, it's part of the story that you open your book with, the the discovery of 10,000-year-old human bones in, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Chukaka Cave, Alaska. And you write that not long ago, that would have led to a swarm of archaeologists to excavate. And, And that would have been a problem? Yes, because these remains were found on tribal lands or or lands that had been historically occupied by particular tribes. And the remains were those of an ancestor that um, would not normally have been um, they would the tribe would not normally have have supported um, the disturbance of his remains. Mm. But they were found accidentally. So they were already disturbed. And the archaeologists involved did an incredible job of going to the tribe and saying, look, we accidentally found these remains when we were looking for, um, you know, Pleistocene age uh, animals. They were actually doing um, paleontological work, not anthropological work. Um, and so they went to the tribe and they said, look, we did, we found this, you know, what should we do? Um, how would you like to handle this situation? And that is the proper course of action when you're dealing with the ancestors of a particular people. And, but unfortunately, and, and there was a good result. Um, there was a, an excellent, well, um, uh, collaborative, ethical uh, excavation that resulted. And, and lots and lots was learned about this ancient man. But that's unfortunately been sort of the exception rather than the rule, that approach in the history of archaeology, in the history of genetics. And things have been changing, but because of the insensitive work that has been done in the past, uh, a number of, of tribes have looked at at that and said, why should we trust researchers? Um, you, you need to give us a reason to trust you in order to do this work. And I think that is fair. And it is something that um, I and a number of colleagues are working to, to improve. You say that the native people of the area, the Tlingit and the Haida, uh, felt that it was uh, that the discovery was important because it supported their beliefs that their ancestors were a seafaring people who've lived in the region since the dawn of history. But we're just talk- we're talking about 10,000 years ago, aren't we, in this case? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, the dawn of history, you know, is a, a term that <laughs> is open to various interpretations, of course. Um, I don't know if they believed that they had been there forever, um, or whether or not it was just extremely ancient. Um, There are a number of different perspectives that tribes have on the past and their own origins. Um, Some of them are to be taken literally, and some of them say we came from this particular region, and, you know, that's it. (laughs) And, you know, other tribes say, well, we have a history of migration into this region. And, Still others say, um, well, we have a history, but this is more about our coming together as a people and our origins in cultural ways, um, how we developed ties and relationships with the lands. It's not meant to be taken as a literal account of our origins. And all of these all of these traditional histories are quite old and quite ancient and um, have been passed down mostly orally. Um, and I think that it is important for those of us who do this work um, using archaeological and genetic evidence that may tell a different story, that we engage with this, that we acknowledge that there's a difference between the stories that genetics or archaeology can tell and these traditional stories, 
and that we're respectful of them, regardless of what we are saying the evidence shows us. It is incumbent on us not to denigrate or treat as less important the, these traditional histories. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Jennifer Raff. Her book, Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas, is published by 12. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Returning to what you were just saying, you say genetics can be used as a tool for understanding the past, but also this area of research can harm indigenous people, and we need to be mindful of that. What are some uh, examples of harmful research in pursuit of the answer to the question of where and how people got here? So I give a couple of examples in the book. Um, One of the ones that keeps coming up when I talk to indigenous peoples is the Havasupai case in um, Arizona. And the Havasupai are a tribe who live in their traditional homelands in the Grand Canyon. And there was a research project that began with the tribe. They're quite small um, and they unfortunately have um, high levels, high rates of a particular genetic disorder. And this project was intended to, um, was pitched to them as we're going to sequence DNA from members of your tribe and we are going to see what we can do about investigating this disorder and um, what can be done about it. And the tribal members hold that their blood is sacred, but nevertheless, in the interests of research and trying to help um, their peoples, they gave it to the researchers and they consented to the research. And it's clear that they did not understand, fully understand what they were consenting to. Um, there's a lot of murkiness surrounding what the researchers told them, what they believed was the case. But in any event, what ended up happening was that their DNA, their blood samples were given to other researchers. Their DNA was used for um, studies which they would not, that they did not approve of, um, such as looking for um, psychiatric disease disorders um, or studying their their genetic origins, which the tribe which which goes against the tribals the tribe's traditional histories. These were all things that, had the tribe been aware, um, they would not have consented to, at least according to their statements in the media. And so they were very upset about this and the, the misuse of their DNA. And um, there was there was a lawsuit that, that took place. It was eventually settled. So we have no you know, clear um, ending to this story, at least legally. But a number of tribes look to the Havasupai case and say, you know, we can't trust that you're going to do this work um, with our knowledge unless you're really... Um, unless you're really open about what you're doing and unless you earn our trust. Mm -hmm. Other kinds of harms that have been done um, include the disturbance of ancestors' remains for scientific research without consultation or without permission, housing them in museums um, when the descendant communities do not approve of this at all. Um, An example might have been uh, the... Roughly 9,000-year-old skeleton found in Washington State in 1996 called the Kennewick Man or the Ancient One. Didn't that spark a legal battle between scientists who wanted to study his remains and local tribes that wanted to rebury their ancestor? 
It did. And this legal battle got quite ugly. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the um, the scientists won. They were allowed to study his remains and they produced a really amazing book on the subject. I mean, it is it is quite comprehensive, um, quite a lot about this man and how he lived and, and what we know about him. Wouldn't that please re- the members of that tribe? It did not because they really wanted him him reburied and they really wanted their um, their decisions about him to be respected. And it's, you know, I guess the best analogy is imagine if your grandmother was dug up from from her cemetery and, you know, studied and, and, and you objected to it, but your objections were overruled. I, I'm arguing in my book that this doesn't have to be an either or. It's not science versus Native Americans. That many many Native Americans are very pro science, are very are scientists themselves. It's a question of how can we do this research in ways that benefit um, Indigenous peoples that accord with their um, their tribal sovereignty and and are respectful and and receive and emerge and learn about science and learn about the past in ways that don't harm people. And there is a way forward. There is a way to do this. I I, I and many of my colleagues are doing this work with the permission of tribes, with their cooperation, and it's a really um, rich and uh, rewarding experience to do science in that way. But this is all fairly new. Uh, Native Americans have uh, been, well, they've been sent to schools that weren't good for them. Uh, Their culture was, uh, the the, the language was uh, pretty much uh, forbidden. Use of their language was forbidden. Uh, All sorts of traditions were forbidden. So uh, is this all with, uh, is this new consciousness all within the last 20 or 30 years? No, um, the there have been scientists throughout history who and and um, activists who have who are non-native activists who have have done their best to advocate for um, more um, ethical research practices and research, you know, that benefits tribes rather than at their expense. Um, and I can, I'm lucky to count among my mentors a number of these um, these scientists, but. It is true that since the founding of this country, even before that, um, colonialism has harmed um, indigenous peoples tremendously. And it's not something that I think those of us who are non-native are are taught in school as much as we should. Um, But this history, especially in archaeology and the study of the past in general, um, this history is tied up in colonialism. And in fact, the very first uh, Europeans who came to the America, American continents wondered who Native Americans were because they were not described in the Bible and immediately began um, coming up with different ideas and different mythologies to explain their presence. As this progressed, it um, developed into this idea, which we call the mound builder hypothesis, which is this notion that the first peoples of the Americas were not actually the ancestors of Native Americans. Um, And this was a very convenient idea in the 18th, 19th centuries, because it meant that, well, Native Americans are latecomers to these lands. That means we have the right to take you know, just as much right to take their land as, as anybody else, especially if the first people here were Europeans, as was often advocated. And the, the, and you that was this. the, the Salutrian hypothesis of ancient Europeans in the Americas. And also uh, 
the claim that the so-called Kennewick man was proof that Europeans got to the Americas first. That is a um, more recent iteration of what I would argue is the same idea. The Salutrian hypothesis is grounded in observations of um, morphological similarities between projectile points seen in North America and projectile points seen in um, in Europe and Western Europe. And most archaeologists argue that, well, you know, there are only so many ways you can make a, a spear point. And this technique that is called overshot flaking that was used just happens to be invented independently across um, both in, in both um, regions. And there's no other archaeological or genetic evidence connecting Europeans and Native Americans. Um, so, you know, I can I can go into this in great detail, but I won't I don't want to bore your audience. But the Salutrian hypothesis, although it is advocated for by some archaeologists, a very, very tiny minority. Still, the majority of archaeologists believe it's just bunk, really. <laughs> so, well, yeah. what are they uh, suggesting That's that uh, Europeans uh, traveled across the Atlantic Ocean? Yes, they do. Um, and they they make Is this there any argument. genetic suggestion that that might be true? No, <laughs> there's no evidence of European There's no ancestry. European DNA. <laughs> the nope. DNA is, is <laughs> Not mostly at all. Siberian and East Asian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are two major ancestry components that are seen in all ancient um, uh, peoples in the Americas that predate European contact, right? And one of them, the majority is East Asian. And, they, um, and then there's also evidence of gene flow, about 25 26,000 years ago from another ancient population we call ancient North Siberians. And there is some real, there are some tantalizing hints of complexity. We see some fascinating connections, genetic connections that unite um, the people, some peoples in South America and Australasian peoples. And so, you know, everybody thinks, oh, well, maybe there's a migration across the Pacific but in fact, when you run the genetic models and you actually like look very carefully at this ancestry, it's much, much older, much more scarce, does not fit that model at all. So instead, it may be evidence of a very, very early migration um, across the Bering Land Bridge um, from peoples who were ancestral to both Native Americans and Australasians. Um, it's, it's a, that's a fascinating mystery that we have to solve yet. And, um, and the people of Easter Island, where would they have come from? Do we know? Yeah, that is a, that's a totally different story. So that would have been um, a different migration much, much later. Um, but that is not, uh, that does not play into the, the, um, the origins of Native Americans at all. Um, we, but I can't stress enough, like we are still, we're, we have so much to left to learn from these genomes. Um, there are very, very little, there's very little genetic evidence, uh, from peoples in the present day United States for the reasons we've just been talking about that the need to build trust, um, and, and in doing this research and a, there's still a lot left to be learned about South America as well. And um, so it's a very exciting time to be a researcher in this field. And the reason I wrote this book is not that I expect it's going to be the last word on this story, far from it. But I kind of hope it'll be a, a, um, 
a framework that people can use for understanding where we are right now. And then when we have, when new discoveries are, are made, you know, how do we understand, how can we understand that? How can we fit that into our present models or well, not? <laughs> you mentioned the two populations, one ancestral to present day East Asians, another that's referred to as ancient North Eurasians. But didn't those two populations interact around 25,000 years ago and produce a number of populations, one that became the ancestors of Native Americans and another that stayed in Siberia? So are, are they, do we see similar genes in, in parts of Siberia to what we see in parts of North America or, or the Americas? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It gets very complicated in Siberia. Um, there are population turnovers that happen after this climactic event that's called the last glacial maximum, the, the Ice Age. Um, well, well let, let's talk event, about the Ice Age for a second. So the, how did the Ice Age facilitate what we're talking about? Yeah, so it sets the environmental conditions that really influence everything that happens. And so during this period of time, which kind of peaks around what where we're talking about around, uh, let's say, 25 to, you know, 15 or 16,000 years ago, um, imagine you have this, this period of cold um, and, and dryness. And, and that's because it's so cold, large parts of the ocean are bound up in glacial ice masses. And that's all people, over the world, right? That's not just... All over the world, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so people, so in the, especially world, in the so northern So human hemisphere, populations retreated into what's called refugia? Yes, especially in the Northern Hemisphere. There are there are other regions where it's pretty nice to live. And so people are in animals and plants are all living in these particular in these refugia and in southern more southern latitudes. And what appears to have happened is that, um, according to the archaeological record, the majority of Siberia was abandoned. It seems to be empty. It was not a good place to live. And so people are moving southward. They're moving eastward. Um, And then. We have this in the genetic record. This is coinciding with this this gene flow event, this intermingling of these two populations, these um, ancient North Siberians and these Eastern Eurasians. And a lot of times when you're looking at um, gene flow events or um, integration, as we sometimes call them, when we're looking at sex between populations that results in in children, um, that often happens suddenly because of a migration where you have two groups coming together in a new new area. And so one of the models that might explain this is that you've got people in East Asia and people from North Siberia moving somewhere and meeting up and having children. And there are a couple of places where that might have happened. But one of the places that one of the candidates that I feel is a leading candidate right now is the Bering Land Bridge itself. So well, can we take a little break yeah. and come back to that? course. Okay. Well, you're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
you're enjoying my conversation with Jennifer Raff. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas. You just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give in the number two, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Jennifer Raff, who is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Kansas, with a dual Ph.D. in anthropology and genetics, uh, which, of course, was important, um, a, a major help in, um, in writing this book, or perhaps it's what led you to write this book? Well, yes, and, and uh, doing research in this area for a long time and being so confused by everything, I, I figured uh, if I was confused, a lot of other people were. So <laughs> I wrote a book to help sort things out. So we were talking about periods of isolation uh, during the last glacial maximum. And during that time, didn't the population we're discussing evolve variants that are unique to the peoples of the Americas? Yes, that's right. Um, so we see the first peoples of the Americas have uh, unique genetic signatures that seem to have emerged during this time period. And that is um, really important because it allows us to, using those genetic variants, um, it allows us to track these migrations and, and the emergence of several subpopulations that occurred during this period of isolation. Um, which, you know, as I was arguing before the break, the most likely candidate for this place where they were isolated was likely Beringia itself. Now, that's the land connection between Asia and North America that was about twice the size of Texas. So we're talking about a pretty large area. Yes. If you uh, well, look at reconstruction. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> that, that's hard to uh, it's hard to argue. <laughs> if you look at. Uh, if you look at reconstructions that paleoclimatologists climat, climat, um, have done, it's, it's really enormous area. And it stretches from Asia through Alaska. But the region that's, that I find really convincing as a refugium during the peak of the last glacial maximum would have been the southern coast of, Bering, of central Beringia. And this so is, of course, the area decent, which is under... It would have been a pretty decent place to live. Yes, that's what these uh, environmental reconstructions have shown. There would have been plants and animals, um, warmer temperatures, lots of resources that people could have um, relied upon during a period where these resources were scarce uh, elsewhere in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, this is just a matter of conjecture, isn't it? Because uh, there's no hard evidence to show that because the area is all underwater now. Yeah, I like to say it's a testable hypothesis, <laughs> not just conjecture. But but yes, we don't have any archaeological ground truthing at this point to to say people were there. It absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why this is just one model of several. And a number of archaeologists would argue, no, no, no. Instead, they weren't there. They were in Asia, where we actually do have evidence of humans being there during um, this this period between 26 and 20,000 years ago. In Siberia. But geneticists, yeah. But geneticists also in North America, argue, right? South of the massive ice sheets that were covering all of, of Canada. 
Yes. Well, um, that is a very fascinating um, development that occurred very recently, the discovery of an archaeological site that seems to have um, seems to indicate that there were people in North America, south of the ice sheet during the peak of the last glacial maximum, where the when the genetic record says the ancestors of Native Americans were isolated from other populations. Um, So the question is, where were they isolated? And they could have been isolated, as I mentioned, in Beringia, or perhaps they were isolated somewhere else. Um, Having people in North America, um, it presents a problem. It it is a bit um, at odds with the genetic models that show um, lineage splitting that occurred consistent with a migration um, down the coast, right? Um, Beginning after about 17,000 years ago. So if that was going on, you know, how can we, how can we square that with evidence of potential evidence of people in North America that early? And that is one of the most fascinating puzzles that we're trying to solve right now. And the site that we're talking about is called White Sands and it's in the White Sands. Yeah. In New Mexico. Mm-hmm. No, it's pretty but, uh, remarkable. I, I, didn't, and, I didn't find any evidence of, of early human uh, <laughs> inhabitants, uh, but the yeah. White Sands are, are just fascinating. Uh, uh, you, and people actually uh, use it like snow. Uh, and it's also mm-hmm. interesting because it's, it's north of an, a strip of, of black uh, volcanic ash that— uh, I guess it was called the Malpai, the Malpais, the bad country. Uh, we see it in the old westerns. Uh, don't worry, he, they went into the bad country. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's a pretty remarkable place. Yeah, so I know. I was hoping to get out there, there to see the sign, but so what, did so we what they discovered. The yeah, they discovered human footprints, and mm-hmm. and not just a few human footprints many, many human footprints. And if the dates are to be believed that that they um, dated these footprints by means of little seeds that are embedded in them um, using radiocarbon dating methods, if the dates are to be believed, there were people walking on this, uh, essentially a shore of an ancient lake in this region for over 2000 years between about um, 21 and 23,000 years ago. And that's just remarkable, thinking of a population staying in this place for over 2,000 years. And, uh, well, there are indigenous people there now. They're they're not related? Well, we don't know. I mean, I think they would certainly say these are their ancestors. And, of course, they knew that they were there. as far as and and absolutely, you know that that makes sense. Um, as far as whether or not they're genetically related, we can't test that question because um, a the indigenous inhabitants haven't consented to it. But also, um, these very ancient peoples from whom we have footprints, we have no DNA from them, so we don't know what um, what their genetic what their genomes looked like at all. Doesn't genetic research show that the genomes of these ancient populations were splitting into different groups that distributed across North and South America? How close are the genomes of people uh, in Canada to the people in southern Argentina? They're quite close. Um, If you think about it, if you go back to this 
this model of isolation. So people, the, the population that's ancestral to Native Americans was isolated for several thousand years, you know, sometime between 26 and 20,000 years ago. And as we discussed earlier, you know, genetic variants common, only found in the Americas emerged during that point. Um, all indigenous peoples from whom we have sequenced genomes come from the, this population. They all have shared ancestry. It was a genetic bottleneck event, so it mean, which means that um, it would have been a relatively small population. Uh, we can kind of talk about what the size that is. We don't really know, but it, it means that there's a close relationship between all indigenous peoples of the Americas. That being said, because we're looking at whole genomes, we can really get at incredibly detailed, incredibly precise pictures of how people were related and genetic groupings that emerged during this time period. That means there's subtle genetic differences. And several branches emerged between about 22 and 20 in 18,000 years ago. One of these population branches gives rise to the first peoples, all the first peoples south of the ice sheets. Another group stays in, um, in Alaska and does not appear to have any present day descendants. And then another group goes back to Siberia. Um, and then there may have been some other populations that emerged during this time period. We don't have a very good sense of them yet because we don't have genomes directly sampled from them, but we have hints of their presence in the genomes of uh, different peoples in uh, Central and Southern, um, South, Central and South America. Weren't archaeologists convinced for a long time that the first people in the Americas were the Clovis of, of New Mexico? Uh, they, they made a, a distinctive kind of stone tool. Uh, and you can go to Clovis, New Mexico right now. Yes. Um, they, you, you even have an illust- you have a number of illustrations in the book, including Clovis stone tool. Yes. Um, that is the, the model that we kind of talked about at the beginning of the, the program where we were talking about this migration of peoples about 13,000 years ago. That was based on the observation that um, these Clovis points and other associated artifacts in a, a sort of toolkit, if you will, um, that we see these cropping up in the archaeological record of North America all across North America very suddenly at about you know 13,000 years ago, give or take. And that signature ha- was long interpreted as a migration of people coming into the continents very quickly um, and spreading out. And they all had sort of this uniform toolkit that everybody used. That model was overturned first by archaeological evidence of sites that predate Clovis, which have other kinds of tools, um, and then also by genetic evidence, which shows that the first peoples um, of the Americas likely got here much, much earlier than that, more like um, 17, 16, 17,000 years ago. And when would you guess that the first ones came to the Americas? Oh, if you're going to tie me down to a model. (laughs) So I have been thinking about this a lot, obviously, because I wrote a whole book on it. Um, And I've been trying to figure out how can we square this archaeological evidence, potential archaeological evidence of people in North America by by 23,000 years ago with the genetic patterns showing a migration slightly later after the end of the last glacial maximum. Um, 
I guess I should first stress that the dating, the dates on these footprints um, at at the site in New Mexico are controversial. A lot of archaeologists think that perhaps they're not quite um, they're not quite that old. Hmm. But if I'm going to accept them provisionally, um, my guess is that there was a very early migration of people that came um, into the Americas sometime before 25,000 years ago, and that these individuals are potentially the ones responsible for this genetic signature that we see connecting Australasians and South Americans, that perhaps this is the the result of a very, very early migration of, of Asians who gave rise to both populations. And that the majority of genetic evidence showing a later migration after the last glacial maximum um, represents the main migration that happens, a second, you know, second migration. And that these two peoples met in South America, at least, and and um, perhaps in North America. We don't know because we don't have any genomes to show us. Um, and so perhaps there were two migrations, at least. Um, Do you think there was movement north as well as south once the air, the the continents became inhabited? Yes, absolutely, there was. Um, in fact, there part of this. Clovis first model that we learned in school, right, was that people were migrating southward through a corridor that had opened up through the ice sheets, right? Um, And as the ice sheets were melting, this sort of path along the Rocky Mountains kind of opened up. And it turns out when you look at the archaeological evidence in the corridor itself, there's not evidence of people migrating southward, as one would expect, but in fact, migrating northward (laughs) through the corridor. And so... It's a lot of hand waving, but I, I think we definitely do see populations moving north as well as south. Um, and we are just on the verge of, of really understanding a lot more of this complexity. But it's going to take a lot of hard work um, and partnerships between geneticists and archaeologists, as well as um, as well as tribes to, to really tease this apart. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. The show is Leonard Lopate at Large. And my guest is Jennifer Raff, whose book, Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas, is published by uh, the 12 Books Division of Hachette. Uh, Getting back to something you were saying earlier, you said, uh, the reason I wrote this book was because this field is so complex and intense and research is getting published so often that changes what we know. And that's and so one of the problems is that histories reconstructed from archaeological and genetic data and oral histories don't always agree. But you feel that it's important that we non-Native scientists respect the expertise of descendant communities regarding their own histories. How, how uh, accurate can those oral histories be uh, since they go back thousands of years? So it really depends. And we see some cases where they're quite accurate. Um, We rely a lot in our work in the North American Arctic and, and looking at population histories in the Arctic, we rely a lot on interpretations done by uh, elders of our genetic evidence um, often we'll find a pattern in the DNA and we'll say, we'll go to somebody and say, okay, we see this pattern, you know, how can we explain it? And the elder often will say, well, you know, it's because of this or that. And, and we go back and test it and we're like, oh my gosh, they were right. And, and it's just um, that happens often enough that it's really important. I think for non-native scientists to be 
humble and respectful when we do our work that, you know, it may not be that we have all the answers, but um, working with uh, tribal historians and tribal elders, you know, we can we can produce a much more rich understanding of history that's hopefully more accurate. Now, sometimes they don't agree. Sometimes we'll come up with um, evidence for, let's say, a migration that is not consistent with tribal histories. And, you know, what do you do with that? Um, I, you know, my perspective, my approach is simply to say, okay, we have these two um, narratives here, these two histories reconstructed, they're reconstructed from different evidence. And I just put them out there and, you know, that's, they just stand alongside each other. Um, well, just traveling through people, Mexico, you become aware of the fact that you really talk about five or six different nations. Uh, you have the, the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Toltecs, uh, et cetera. And people even look different. There's a lot of... And we're talking um, about one country. Yeah. Oh, there's an incredible amount of cultural and biological and genetic variation between um, peoples and linguistics, too. I mean, the, it's incredible. The number of languages in the, um, in the Americas, just astounding. And unfortunately, many of them are being lost as uh, native speakers, you know, age and, and, and die and, and perhaps do not leave... Um, their languages to be uh, to be continued on, but um, there, yeah, this this variation is astounding, and this, you know, yet another piece of evidence, perhaps arguing for a much longer occupation of the Americas by indigenous peoples than used to be believed by uh, non-native scientists. We have just a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to mention that a number of well-known people make appearances in your book. Thomas Jefferson, Alice Erdlich, uh, Franz Boas, uh, also Jose de Acosta, a Jesuit priest who predicted long ago that the indigenous peoples of the Americas were related to Northeast Asian populations. And George McJunkin, a formerly enslaved man who made one of the most important archaeological discoveries of the 20th century at Folsom, New Mexico. Can you what what did he do in a minute? Yes, uh, George McJunkin was a um, self-taught naturalist and a and a cowboy and a ranch foreman, and he um, was riding the range one day and discovered the remains of an extinct bison, and he recognized the importance and the significance of these remains. And after his death, they were investigated by archaeologists who discovered projectile points with these extinct bison, which proved that humans had been in the Americas since the end of the Pleistocene, which was not a thing that was believed by many archaeologists then. And what did Thomas Jefferson do? Thomas Jefferson, uh, a complicated man, his legacy is complicated, but one of the things he did was essentially event the scientific tradition of archaeology in the Americas by excavating um, a mound on his property and demonstrating that the people buried in the mound were the ancestors of Native Americans, present-day Native Americans. Um, the ethics of excavating the mound are a whole separate question, but, but that is what he, uh, what he did. I want to thank you so much for being on our show. It's been fascinating. Jennifer Raff is an associate professor of anthropology at University of Kansas, uh, doing both anthropology and genetics. Uh, she's written for many publications and now a best-selling book called Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas, published by the 12 imprint of Hachette Books. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Kaziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopate at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content. Information you don't usually get anywhere else, or if you do, you just get a, a, a quick gloss of it. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Lodge right now can go even deeper into this com- to this subject and receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas by Jennifer Raff. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And that's really important because it... If you become a member for $10, $15, 20 however much you can afford, it'll, it allows us to plan for the future. And uh, believe me, when, you, when you're living hand-to-mouth and day-to-day, that, that, that is a quite a relief. And we'll say thank you for doing that with a BAI tote bag if you sign up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because... WBAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to become completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Lend a Little Bit at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one that New York Radio does 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us on Monday when my guest will be Ira Shapiro discussing his new book, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.